Well, good morning, True North Church. It is great to be here with you. I found myself uh, filled with some very conflicting emotions uh, at that last song, especially that last verse. I'm going to fight with this for just a second. Uh, Caught me a little bit unawares as we talked about winging our flight home. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, my father died, and I happened to be in Fairbanks at the time with your pastor, Philip. We had Uh, He and I and Brock Langley, who's with Mosaic Campus Ministry, had driven north of North Pole because the northern lights were out, and we went out and we were watching those, and on the way back, I received the phone call that uh, my father had passed away, and I was just so blessed that Philip was there with me. We'd become uh, uh, great friends, good friends, and uh, pulled off to the side of the road, and he just ministered to me in that grief in that moment, but I wasn't prepared this morning for those words, and the Lord just ministered to me. And uh, I want you to pray with me that the Lord will keep me settled and focused on his word this morning because I want it to minister to you and minister to me as well. And I want to be faithful to that. I also realized as I was sitting there that this is the first message I've preached since my father passed. And he was my ministry mentor. He was 88 years old, served God faithfully all of his life as a, as a pastor. And... Uh, So this is a special moment for me, and it's special to be here with True North Church, because many of you may not know, but Christ Community Church actually was one of the first local church partners with True North Church when it was first planted. Uh, We have worked with True North through all of the pastors who have uh, been called here to serve you. I've been friends with all of those people. I've shared in your uh, successes. I have wept with you when things didn't go as well as they could have and when hearts have been broken and uh, Christ Community Church loves True North Church. And uh, it is great to be here with you, and I really do appreciate your pastor, uh, Philip, so much as a personal friend. So we are going to jump right back into the book of Exodus. Chapter 16 is where we're going to be. If you brought a Bible or a study guide with you this morning, I'd encourage you to go there with me. And we're going to start out with just reading some of the passage. I'm going to pick a couple of things out of there tell the rest of the story, and then hopefully bring us to some thoughts that will encourage us as we perhaps face similar struggles and trials in our lives that we see the people of Israel facing on this long journey, which, by the way, at this point, hasn't been very long. We're going to touch on that in just a moment. All right, so Exodus chapter 16, starting in verse 1, they set out from Elam And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. Let me first say, uh, I got really excited when I saw the wilderness of Sin because I thought, man, that's a great connection, right? Not the same word in the Hebrew uh, as the word sin. Uh, Actually, completely different words. It just means the middle place between Sinai and Elam. All right, that's what the word means. And on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." And there's the core of the complaint. Now understand, we, we, we can understand the history of the Israelites with the Egyptian people, 
and they were being held in captivity, right? Now, some of them had good lives. Some of them were working in commerce, and they had money, and they had families, and they had homes, but they still were not in possession of or elevated to the place where God had always intended for them to be, which was as his chosen people. That was their destiny. That was their God-designed, God-called destiny to become those people and live in the fullness that he intended for them to live. And yet in this moment, when they're in the wilderness, they've just begun their journey, things are a little tight, things are hard, things are uncertain. They find themselves wishing that they could have gone back to Egypt or stayed in Egypt and literally died of old age next to their stores of meat and water and fruit and comfort rather than possess the promise that God had given to them. And they made this grumbling, of course, to their leaders, to Aaron and to Moses. And in fact, they don't just say that you've made a mistake, but they say that you intended to bring us into the wilderness to kill us. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty strong. But after this happens, it says then in verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Amen? Any bread lovers? <laughs> Amen. This sounds like good news to me. I'm about to rain bread. I felt like Oprah right there for just a second. Bread. Everybody loves bread. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to, to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now, before I go back and touch on a couple of things in this passage, I want to say uh, this passage can often be used from a pastoral standpoint to, to use as a stick to beat the church and the congregation about things that the pastor wants to do or lead the church. And he says, see, if you're grumbling, you're grumbling against God, not against me. I don't think that's a very good application of this passage, and it certainly is not one that I would expect to hear from Pastor Philip, and it's not one that you're going to hear from me. Because I am aware, painfully aware, that as you and I labor together in the ministry of the church, we are indeed laboring together. And God can only lead you as he leads me, and he really can only lead me as he leads you. We are in this together. Uh, I know that this church values your input, your thought, what God is doing within you that brings to the table of the church, the vision of the church. So if you've heard that used in this way in the past, I want you to go ahead and put those defenses down uh, 
because that is not what you'll be hearing this morning. All right? Let's go back and touch on a couple of things. One, God tells Moses and Aaron that he is going to rain this bread from heaven because he wants to test the people, whether they will walk in his law. And I just ask you the question, do you think that God still tests us today? Does God still challenge us today through circumstance, through event, through conversation with us, through our prayer time, speaking to us through the word, sometimes graciously using this foolishness of preaching to speak into our lives from the word of God? Does he challenge us and test us still today as he did with the people of Israel? I'm going to leave that question with you. We're going to come back to it later. But the way in which he says he's going to test them specifically is that he's going to respond to their grumbling, which isn't that gracious? Isn't God magnificent that in this time when he has rescued them from their captivity, they grumble against him? This is one of those passages where I think to myself, it's a good thing that I'm not God. Because my reaction would probably have been much different. You're ungrateful. You're mean-mouthed. You're being bad to the guys I, I gave you to, to help you sort this out. You don't really trust me. You don't believe anything that I've said or done so far. You know what? You're on your own, buddy. That would be me as God. But that's not God. Amen? And instead, he's gracious. And even in the fact of their grumbling, and I'm going to highlight that for you just a little bit more in, in, in a moment and put this really into sharp relief. He does not punish them. He does not accuse them. He does not set them aside. He hears the grumbling and the pain of their heart, and he says, I'll do something. But in my doing, I'm going to continue to lead you back to me and try to redirect your thinking and your thoughts and the actions of your lives to me. And the way he's going to test them is he's already given them some instruction that we learn even from the book of Genesis about six days of work and then the Sabbath. And so that's why he builds in here. He says, you're going to collect for six days this, this bread that's going to rain from heaven. But on the seventh day, you're going to rest and you're not going to collect on that day because, now this is cool, you're going to collect the same amount on day six, but when you make it into bread, it's going to turn out twice as much bread. And it's going to give you enough for Saturday and for Sunday. Wow! That's amazing. And he says that he's going to use that simple request, simple requirement to test if they will continue to walk in his law. Now, later in the story, we find that that's what they do. They go and they collect. And then some, uh, the other thing that he says is, uh, don't try to save up. So like on Monday, you go out and you collect in the morning. Don't try to save up enough to have more for later in the week. He says it won't work. And it doesn't. Some try to do that. They don't 
follow in his law, and they do that, and what they collect extra the next day turns into this maggot-infested, gross, stinking pile of yuck. There's a metaphor for you. And then others actually try to go out on the seventh day. They try to collect, and there's nothing to collect, just as God said there would be. Now, we get to this place. They've come out of Egypt. They're they're feeling pressured about food. Now, nothing here tells us that the people are hungry. Nothing here tells us that there's some cataclysmic event or that, that, that rations are tight and everybody's, you know, getting, you know, one little wafer a day and a sip of water, none of that. We get everything in the text tells us that God is taking care of his people. But because there was so much available in the land of Egypt, it's not their lack of sustenance that's causing them to have fear. It's their lack of abundance that's causing them to have fear. And God is bringing them to a place, and I think he brings us to a place in our relationship with Christ where while he promises abundant life in Christ, what he wants us to be like he is instructing the people of Israel to be is he wants us to be confident that his provision is both enough and more than enough. But it is all his work to do. Now, we get to this place where they're grumbling. We understand that apparently they're not starving. They're not hungry. They're not uh, in in some sort of panic, but they're worried about what things used to be, and they'd like for it to look similar to that. And I want to remind you that in chapter 16, we're having this conversation that they feel like there's not enough food. They're going to die in the desert. We are on the 15th day of the second month. We are not long out from Egypt. And to even put that into sharper relief, we have already had at the shore of the Red Sea, there stands the multitude of Israel, there stands the Red Sea, Moses is here, on the hillside the chariots of Pharaoh are coming down through the valleys, whooping and hollering and ready to ride right down on them. We're just days from the borders of the major city that they've left. And what do they do there? They turn to Moses and say, you've just brought us out here so Pharaoh can come down here and kill us because we can't go anywhere. The valley that way is filled with chariots and that way is filled with water. What are you doing? Of course, we know the story. God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, go stand at the shore of the Red Sea, put your feet in the water, raise your hands. And as Moses' hand moved, God's hand moved. And those waters were swept back by the very hands of God. And the people of Israel walked across on dry land. That was the first test. That God had brought them to a place that looked impossible, was nothing like what they'd seen before, and they weren't sure how the path forward was going to go. And they immediately accused Moses of failure. I think that's understandable. But then God showed up. And one chapter later, we're in the wilderness, making our way to the place we are today. They come to a place, and there's water, but the water is bitter, and they can't drink it. And what do they do? Do they look to God and say, God, 
You've been so miraculous. You, you, you brought all those plagues in Egypt, and you forced the hand of Pharaoh. You hardened his heart, and then eventually he finally let us go. We were released. We're headed towards the promised land. We got a little bit sketchy when we got to the shores of the Red Sea. It was a little scary. It didn't look like we didn't know how this was going to work out. And then you worked it out. That was awesome. And now here we are. This water is here, but we can't drink it. It's terrible. Could you help us? No, that is not what they did. They looked at Moses and said, you, you brought us out here, and this water is terrible. Fix it. Moses appeals to God. God gives him a way forward, and the water is made sweet, and they drink it. We're a chapter later now, 75 days into a 40-year wander. Are you with me? There's not enough food, Moses. We don't have, we don't have bins overflowing with, with leeks and onions and all the things that Israel had to offer, that Egypt had to offer, and, and, and we're sure we're going to die, and it's all your fault. Do you see the common thread here that when calamity comes, who are they turning to? I don't know. I know who they're not turning to. And this is the question we wrestle with in our own lives. How do I know that? Because it's the question I wrestle with. When calamity comes, where do I turn? Where is my faith? Where is my trust? I would like to say it gets better, but you're going to get to chapter 17 soon. And you'll see that this trend continues. <laughs> there might be an instruction in that for us as well as we examine our own lives. I remember uh, 1989, we had the historic, March of 1989, the historic Valdez oil spill, Prince William Sound. And uh, I was able to go down there and work through uh, my brother-in-law's computer company. We, we gained a contract where we did a bunch of computer programming to set up floating grocery stores for the little boats that were out there picking up otters and washing them with Dawn soap and, and scooping oiled globs out of the water. We'd take these big ships, like you see on Deadliest Catch, if you've ever watched it, those big fish tenders, crab tenders. A bunch of them got turned into floating grocery stores. And we wrote the software to manage all of that out there in the bay. And so I was working in Valdez, and uh, we had what were called man camps, very similar if you've worked on the slope or if you happen to have worked down in the Montana shale oil fields or down in Texas, Louisiana coast, those places, very similar, but a little different in Alaska because we're so remote. You have man camps where everybody stays, dorms, and the center of that is the kitchen. It's the dining hall. It's magnificent in most places. I, I understand it's not as magnificent as it used to be because in the 80s we had money to burn, and it was awesome. However, when I first went to Valdez, I was first contracted with Exxon, and Exxon was, of course, trying to save every penny they could because they knew they were in big trouble. And the man camp that I was in was much more like a prison camp, um, and the food was not much better. And so it was disappointing. would go, and it was kind of one of those places where the, the main cook was a big hairy dude named Mama, and he'd throw food at your plate when you went by. And you couldn't quite tell what it was when it hit the plate, but it gave you sustenance, and you went on for the next day. And we were working long, long days. And that lasted for about two weeks. And then our company got picked up by a different contractor through uh, the Tetitlek 
Native Corporation, and they were fabulous, and they had their own man camp, went there, and the beds were nicer, and the people were nicer, and they hired professional chefs to cook all the food. And so every day of the week was a different theme. And so like Sundays were seafood day, and it would just be this magnificent spread of Alaskan seafood, some of it coming from right out of the waters right where we were standing. Uh, Tuesdays were uh, the most magnificent taco bar you've ever seen, which I'm totally down for. Uh, tacos are the most perfect food on the planet. I just ate them last night. I'm very happy about it. I'm thinking about it still. I love them. Wednesdays were prime rib, and so on. You get the idea, right? Every night had a theme, and the food was magnificent. And after about 13, 14 weeks of that, here's what happens. You walk in on Wednesday and you go, prime rib again? Are you kidding me? Can we, chef, can we get something different in here on Wednesdays? And even though we had this great abundance, perfectly cooked, it became so familiar and it became so ordinary that we forgot the wonder of it. Even though we'd even had the experience of what was worse. Most of us would get to the place where uh, I loved, we had this one uh, uh, Asian chef who worked with us and he had all these spices that we had never seen before and hot oils and things like that and so it'd be like, oh, we got it's ice cream for dessert again. Can you put some of that hot oil on this ice cream and give me something different to taste tonight? And we'd just kind of go overboard on the spices to just do something different. And it reminds me of this. It wasn't as if we didn't have enough. In fact, we had more than enough. But our nature allowed us to drift to a place where we didn't even appreciate the abundance that we had, much less what might have been lacking in what we had. Now, we take that and transfer that, that behavior, that tendency in us to something more complex or complicated than what kind of food we're going to eat. I just want you to take a moment to think about some calamity, some catastrophe that's happened in your life. A grief, a heartache, a disappointment. Some of us have, have traveled a few more miles than others of you, and we have a lot more of those things maybe to count. But some of you, even young folks, you've, you've maybe had experiences in your life that really have wounded you. And this is not to point a finger of shame because you see here, God didn't point a finger of shame when the people grumbled. He came to their need. And so I'm not pointing any finger of shame at you or myself either. I'm asking the question, when we hit those times of calamity and catastrophe and grief and heartbreak, where do we first look for our trust? Where do we first look to be sustained? The lesson that God was trying to teach to the people of Israel is the same lesson that he is intending to teach us through Christ himself. That separate from our circumstances, God is good and he loves us. And from him, all things proceed. 
which we need, and he supplies. In the final part of Exodus chapter, 20, uh, chapter 16, it says this, some of the story that I just told you, verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none, as God said that they would. And the Lord said to Moses, he was a little irritated here, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Stop pretending like you didn't hear what I said or stop disbelieving me. I told you on the sixth day I would give you enough for the seventh, and yet here some of the people don't trust me. Remain, each of you, in his place and let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested. They got the message on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. Now, there's something interesting about this passage, by the way. I'm going to focus on the manna, but I want to point out to you that that was not the only miracle that occurred in this passage. This is the first time that God also provides quail. It's earlier in the passage. If you go back and read between the verses that I've read today, it says, God says, in the evening, I'm going to give you quail, which becomes a problem later because the people do like I did in Valdez, and they start complaining like, quail again? And I'll just give you a peek. Can God be passive-aggressive? I don't know. This sounds passive-aggressive to me. When the people complain about the quail, God doesn't give them something else. He buries them in quail. <laughs> now, that sounds like something I would do. Um, so not the only miracle, manna, also quail. Quail in the evening, manna in the morning, which sounds like sandwiches to me, and I'm totally down for that. Uh, it sounds, sounds all right. But here's the thing. Do you know what the word manna means in the Hebrew? It means, I love, whatness. What? W-H-A-T-N-E-S-S. Whatness, which means, what is that? <laughs> what is it? And it says it right in here. It says, this is something no one has ever seen before. It says it laid across the ground like coriander seed white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer, that's about two liters, of it be kept through your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so it's like a seed. They would take it, they would gather it, and they would grind it, just like wheat, make cakes and breads and all sorts of things out of it. Uh, verse 33, Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As Israel ate the manna for four, oh, as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to a habitable, habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. It then says, parenthetically, an omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Whatness. What is this? It's one of a kind. It's never been seen before. Now, quickly, we're going to race to the end of this to tie this connection in that I think will be a hopefully light bulb. 
Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. This is Moses now talking to the people about what God had done for them in the past. He's reminding them. He says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. So they're right on the threshold of the promised land. And you shall remember the way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, what? Testing you. Does he still do this? You have to answer that question for yourself. To know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You ever heard that phrase before? Anybody remember who said that? Who said that later? Jesus, right? He's being tempted in the wilderness. Satan says to him, "See that stone right there? I know you're hungry. Turn it into bread." And Jesus says, "The scriptures say, man does not live by bread alone, but by every mouth, every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord." John chapter six. Verse 25, here we go. When they, the people, the multitude, found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come over here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He just performed the miracle of feeding the multitude. And they wanted more bread, as Jesus says. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in, whom, in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now get this. Tie this back to the people of Israel at the Red Sea. God rescues them. Bitter water. God rescues them. Worried about food. God rescues them. A little bit later, no water. God rescues them. These people just came from a sit-down lunch where a few loaves and a couple of fish Jesus blessed, and it fed everyone and left 12 baskets full, and they come to him and say, by the way, by what kind of miracle will you perform so that we'll actually believe that you're who you say you are? They said, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And then Jesus drops the bomb. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, 
and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And that ultimately becomes the question that we're faced with, that we must wrestle with. In times of calamity, where do we turn? When we're looking for that which sustains us, what is it that we think that we're going to be sustained with? Is it truly Jesus Christ and all that he offers, the true bread of life? Because this is what God is saying. Manna was the first and only one of its kind. In John 3.16, it says, God, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In the Greek, begotten means very much the same thing. It means the first of a kind, the first and only of its kind. Jesus is the manna of salvation. It's never existed before. He is the one and only, pre-eternal and ever-existent, Jesus Christ, the Savior. God's provision in the wilderness was the shedding of blood with the quail and the breaking of bread. When he shed this blood and broke this bread, his glory was revealed for the people to see. And he was calling them not to eat for their flesh. The bread would do that. The quail would do that. But that wasn't the point. He was calling them to consume his glory for their spiritual salvation. The miracle, my friends, in the wilderness was not the food. And the miracle at the feeding of the 5,000 was not the fish and the bread. The miracle was the word of God, the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself, the very presence of God. And just like he called the people of Israel to trust him for their sustenance, he calls us to trust God. Christ fully for every single thing that we need, want, desire, require. It all proceeds from Christ. The one, the begotten, the Savior. I leave you with this passage from Ephesians chapter 3. starts in verse 20. I think you'll make the connection. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.